In the sixth season of this podcast, we'll be looking at five great paintings that have something interesting to tell us about ourselves and our place in the world. You know, art's been called the universal language. Aristotle thought it was the greatest form of therapy. Nietzsche proclaimed that it's only through art that existence is justified and that without music, life would be a mistake. Now, outside of some carvings, painting is one of the oldest of the arts. In fact, there's a painting in a limestone cave in Indonesia that's 45,000 years old. You know, it's amazing just how much human creativity and some colored pigment can do. I mean, paintings can bring about political change. They can stand as artifacts from distant places. They can provide some escape from our everyday cares. But maybe most importantly, they can be irreverent and open us up to new worlds no one has ever seen before. This is the wisdom of, and this is episode one, the Lasco Cave Paintings. season is is one that we debated about quite a bit. It's it's a different focus than anything we've done up to this point. We're going to focus on great paintings, great works of art to discuss. In my opinion, today's choice is so great. Uh, focusing on these ancient cave paintings is fantastic because, you know, so much discourse on art or books or movies today really you find it focuses on what came before like the perpetual talk of Easter eggs hidden within shows or did you see how they recreated the war room from Dr. Strangelove in that new movie or how many books have we read that alluded to Odysseus and his amazing trek like when I look at this old stuff I find myself really envying those artists because you know well, first of all, I cannot draw at all, but they were really drawing from a blank canvas, like literally and figuratively. You know, as, as far as we know, this is one of the first instances of, I don't know what to call it, like an unbridled creativity. And even if this isn't, something has to be, and there's just something so amazing about that. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? To think that this is one of the birthplaces of art. But so, for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, here's a brief history. So, the Lascaux Cave in France was discovered in 1940 by a group of children who were trying to rescue a dog that had fallen down a hole in the ground. To their surprise, after making their way through a, a 50 feet shaft, they came upon cave walls covered with over 2,000 figures most of them being powerful and beautiful depictions of animals. Animals like bulls and horses. And some of them were even over 12 feet tall. It turned out that they had walked into a world that had been undisturbed for thousands of years. Virgin territory. 
unseen by any except for its original creators. Actually, it turned out that these cave paintings went as far back as the Paleolithic era or the Old Stone Age. That's to say about 17,000 to 20,000 years ago, a time when humans were hunters and gatherers. And it's interesting, until fairly recently, Paleolithic art was thought to have been only a Western European phenomenon, confined largely to France and Spain. But actually, no. Now similar decorated caves have been discovered on every continent on the planet except Antarctica. And, by the way, these cave paintings obviously have received no shortage of praise. Um, Jackson Pollock, for instance, honoured Lascaux by leaving handprints along the top edge of at least two of his paintings. And Picasso was so impressed when he visited the caves that he said upon leaving that in 15,000 years we have invented nothing and that beyond these caves there is only decadence. One amazingly consistent thing that we see across art uh, across myths and folklore is the repetition of the half human half animal hybrid you find examples from i don't know from china from brazil from egypt from ancient greece from native tribes of north america and i could go on and on and on it's it's pretty much everywhere if people had somehow inhabited antarctica we'd surely see much much more half man half penguin hybrids in art as much as it crosses the globe, it more importantly maybe crosses time. What does it say about us that these depictions go all the way back, as far as we know, to the oldest of art? Half man, half penguin. I like it. Yeah, well, the depictions are no different here. So, in the Lascaux Caves, there's a human figure, but it's got the head of a bird, and even what appears to be bird-like hands. Actually, He's known as, well, not surprisingly, the Birdman. And in lots of other Paleolithic cave art, human subjects also appear on the cave walls, but often with an animal head, like it might be a, a human figure with the head of a mammoth or a stag. So, what's going on here? Why part human, part animal? Well, Maybe they're meant to represent something like um, hunters in disguise. You know, a way to deceive their prey. That's possible. But actually, I want to offer up another explanation. And this is a view that was in part put forward by the French philosopher Georges Bataille, um, a polymath of sorts and someone who was very, very interested in prehistoric art and culture. So this is what Bataille says. He believed that the Paleolithic individual didn't quite feel separated from animals. That humans were in a process of transitioning, yes, but that they weren't quite ready to leave their ancestors behind. So the reason these artists depict humans with masks then is because they wanted to depict the part of the animal that remained within them, but at the same time to disguise the humanity that they knew distinguished them from animals. 
Hence, you get the head of an animal that in some sense deflects notice of the human body. So basically, these Paleolithic artists were doing this out of respect for the animals. You see, Bataille believed that the prehistoric person, although respectful of their power, maintained a poetic bond with animals, that they moved alongside them and felt sympathy for them. And like many indigenous cultures still around today, the prehistoric person felt no contempt for what they had to kill and that the feelings of the animals didn't really differ from their own. My, oh my, how things have changed, no? When would we, in the modern Western world, don the mask of an animal today as a, as a celebration of our ancestry and a rounding out of our nature? I mean, for us, isn't animality itself seen as something to be eliminated? or a form of de-evolution? Anyway, if Bataille is right, I think it's pretty safe to say we've, we've forgotten that intimacy Paleolithic people shared with animals. If there's any relationship we do have with them now, it's a hierarchical one, no? Where they've been reduced to nothing more than objects for us. In contemplating the cave paintings, then, Maybe we can recover some of our lost intimacy with animals and recapture a time when animals were not yet objects and we were not yet entirely human. In other words, they might help to remind us of some of what we've lost in becoming the species we've become. If I can indulge in a bit of an old man, get off my lawn moment, you know, I guess made more difficult by not having an actual lawn, but an oldster observation nonetheless, that, that one of the dominant acts today seems to be self-inflicted photography, you know, a, a selfie in the parlance of our times. How many pictures do people take of themselves per week, per day, per hour? But when we examine ancient cave art, what does it say? What does it say about the artists? What does it say about those people back then that we see a distinct lack of them in this art, a distinct lack of people other than, you know, what looks like at what best I could muster crudely drawn stick figures? Yeah, I've seen your stick figures, and I'm not sure that crude goes quite far enough. But anyway, you're right. One of the most intriguing things about these cave paintings, the thing that stands out the most, is, well, the absence of human beings on them. I mean, there are some there, and there are others in some of the cave paintings in Spain. But overall, they're pretty marginal. You know, off to the side, not center stage. And when they're there, they're depicted as, like you said, stick figures, and they don't even have any faces. Instead, what does take center stage are animals. Animals that are not only depicted with grandeur and power, but also painted with immaculate detail and attention. So we get this sharp contrast, it seems, between 
tiny, faceless humans and these large, magnificent creatures. Actually, the way we're placed at the margins of life in these cave paintings reminds me a bit of the painting-like films of the Italian director Michelangelo Antignoni, especially his films from the early 60s. Now, he's made some of the most beautiful films ever, but if you haven't seen them, they can be quite shocking or off-putting. They're off-putting to watch because they're films where often the actors don't occupy the center of the frame, but instead the larger world does, whether it's a, a landscape or a building. In these films, the actors, the characters, are often placed on the periphery of a shot, or even cut off or blocked by the the hard edge of a more pronounced world. For Antignoni, the human drama is visually marginal, as it's set up against the larger, imposing world. And I think that's because, well, it's because he's trying to express characters that are alienated subjects. Specifically, I think there are people that are estranged from the overwhelming presence of modern life. But anyway, so back to the cave paintings in France. So why this relative absence of human beings on those walls? Or why their marginalization? It might strike us as a bit strange, right? I mean, I would say we live in a world where we're never not in the picture. From the original Greek amphitheaters where the the human drama on stage took precedence over the natural backdrop to the, well, as you mentioned, 10,000 selfie pics in our phone, it all attests to the same thing. What's that? Well, it's all about us. We're at the center of everything. Anthropocentrism reigns supreme. So, What these cave paintings seem to reveal is that, well, in the Paleolithic world, humans did not think of themselves as occupying center stage, as, well, all that important in the grand scheme of things. Actually, these bipedal stick figures seem to attest to this, no? I mean, I mean, think about it. The artists, given how they majestically represented some of the animals obviously would have the capacity to bolster us up a bit if they wanted to, right? But yet they didn't. You know, these stick figures remind me a bit of some of the famous statues of the, of the Swiss sculptor Alberto Giacometti. Now, if you haven't seen them, they're these skinny, elongated, totally pared-down statues without any traces of individual features in their faces. Um, one called Walking Man is a really good example. Anyway, what's really intriguing, but also chilling about them, is their inherent sense of frailty. Actually, Giacometti often chose to use plaster when making them, and that's because it was the most fragile and delicate material that a statue can be made of. Well, why did he want this? Well, because by building them with this material, it helped him to um, convey a sense of human fragility and transience. 
And not only that, but by reducing the human figure to its barest essentials and by emaciating it, it enabled him to express, well, human insignificance. Actually, his statues came to be associated with the existentialist movement, and so they were often interpreted as an expression of the existential fear, loneliness, and contingent nature of humankind. Well, given these similar stick figures on those cave walls, I think that's the sort of view of the Paleolithic artist. That is, both the the marginality of human figures and their minimalism in these cave paintings seems to indicate that humans were not the main characters in the show that took place around them. No, this belonged to the megafauna that populated and ruled their world, and to the larger natural world. And is that a surprise? Well, no. I mean, they were nomadic people living at nature's mercy. They were surrounded by a largely hostile and threatening environment. And they were basically living under rock ledges. And so I think it's for this reason that their art, those cave paintings, was not just something made for its own sake, but rather that it served a more practical, important purpose. Actually, the idea of art for art's sake wasn't something that was even conceived of until the 19th century. In fact, um, Edgar Allan Poe was one of the first artists to talk about writing a poem for no other reason than simply for the poem's sake. But anyway, if the Paleolithic artist had an ulterior reason for painting, what was it? Well, I'm no expert, but that said, I don't think anyone knows for sure but it probably had something to do with building up their confidence to capture and kill these large beasts that ruled over the land. Maybe they thought that by creating these images of these animals, that they gained a kind of control over them, over their spirits maybe. That is, maybe they thought that if they made an image of their possible prey and hit it with um, spears or rocks or something like that, that the real animal this image corresponded to would also succumb to their power. So in other words, they might have painted the animals in an attempt to exert some sort of influence over them, exercising a form of, well, um, sympathetic magic, sort of like um, the voodoo doll practice. Whatever the details were, I think we can assume that painting these animals and these larger murals was psychologically beneficial when it came to facing a world that was, well, frightening and unpredictable. And I gotta say, I think it's important to stress just how powerful and terrifying nature was to them. I mean, it's not so easy for us moderns to get into this mindset. And that's because for us, our surrounding world has become, well, basically dead material to be used and manipulated. But for the Paleolithic person, the environment is a real independent presence. It's alive and a force of its own. Actually, the Austrian philosopher Martin Buber makes a a distinction that might be helpful here. 
He makes this distinction between seeing the world as an it or seeing it as a thou. And the basic idea is that seeing the world as an it is seeing it as an object. But seeing it as a thou is to see it as a alive presence, as something powerful, unpredictable, and not susceptible to control or classification, whether that took the form of a a thunderstorm or a six-ton mammoth. Well, I think that was nature for the Paleolithic person. It was an awesome, overwhelming presence, an in-your-face thou, that you must show some reverence towards. Given this, it's pretty incredible the role that art played, no? That through art, they thought they might be able to gain some modicum and temporary control over nature, to sometimes compel nature to do as they wished. Actually, in this way, you could argue that art may be figured centrally in the early survival of our species. But you know what? I think maybe the greater lesson is that at the end of the day, these hunter-gatherers, in their seeming self-effacement, knew where they stood in the grand scheme of things, which was not very high up. Their humility and healthy respect for nature should stand as a reminder and a warning to us and our um, Promethean domination over the planet. You know, somewhere around the time of the Old Testament writing, that Paleolithic humility took a turn. When God blessed Noah is a pretty good example. This is what he calls out to Noah. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air and upon all that moveth upon the earth. Into your hands are they delivered. There it is. God gives the final seal to our dominion over nature and the animals. Now it is we who instill the fear and evoke the dread in the beasts. Now, of course, it's gotten worse than that even. I mean, ours is a world now which operates according to the technological processing of living beings, where we usurp, mechanize, appropriate, and process life itself. How far we have gone since Genesis with this dominion and irreverence is something that we will, I think, have to reckon with. And when we do, we'll wish we had heeded some of the Paleolithic wisdom so beautifully preserved in those cave cathedrals in Lascaux, France. been listening to the wisdom of podcast 
If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode. Picasso. Thank you.